The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold, Behold. the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative Contagion, the word virus. Versus the Lizard People. Punk Rock versus the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock versus the Lizard People. Mod Log 4, Roommate, Five Days Left on Earth. Again, neon orbs ascended the black screen to the tune of a synthesizer twinkle as the title screen for Bubble Bobble appeared on the TV. I let my head fall back with a dramatic sigh. Ignoring me, Isaiah nodded at my controller and grunted, Hit start. I obliged, and when the second screen appeared, he grunted a second time. Two players. I looked over at him, staring. What? he asked. Dude, I said, take a chill pill. I am chill, he said. Do you somehow think I've forgotten you're sitting here beside me? Do you think I don't know how to select two players? You didn't select two players on Mario. I keep telling you that was two players. You have to take turns on Mario, he grunted in disbelief. That's why we're playing Bubble Bobble, dummy. It's the only crappy game I have that we can play at the same time. It sucks. It's your game. My grandma gave me this game, man, I argued. Two players, he said again, nodding at the screen as if the last few seconds hadn't happened. Groaning, I hit the stupid start button and two pudgy little dragons encapsulated in floating bubbles levitated on the black background. Words appeared. Isaiah squinted at the screen and began reading aloud. Now is the beginning of a fantastic story. I can read, I can read, 
I interrupted him, waving a hand in front of his face. Remember, I read that whole historian thing you made me look at last night after everyone left? Don't be dismissive. We're the same. You, me, the historian, we're all on to something. You read only one document. There are four of them. So why are we sitting here dying in bubble bobble? If reading these historian posts is what it takes to get you out of my attic, then let's read them. Isaiah looked severe. You aren't ready, he said. The bubbles floated down into a room of platforms and popped, freeing our dragons to bounce about the levels, burping bubbles out at the enemies that dropped from the ceiling. I've got him, I've got him, Isaiah announced as I inched toward a blue crab-like opponent. A new level began. Oh, Jesus, I sighed. I can't play any more bubble bobble, I just can't. Let's beat it again, Isaiah said, ignoring my disdain. That was cool. We beat it, dude. It's over. We've got nothing left to prove. Isaiah tossed his controller aside and began sorting through the mess of Nintendo cartridges scattered about the floor in front of us. I knew what he was looking for. No, dude, seriously, no more marble madness. Locating the cartridge, he held it up for dramatic effect and said, The Emi thrive by confronting challenge and overcoming it. Marble madness. The game of guiding a rolling marble down a descending maze of pitfalls and traps. Challenge? I echoed sarcastically. I'm not sure challenge is the word for it. Your thumbs are too big, man. You roll the damn marble off the ledge the minute the game starts. You talk to me while I'm playing. It messes me up. Oh, it's me messing you up. You distract me. You die instantly whether I say a word or not. Then you flip out. The game cheats! he suddenly shouted, freaking out. Your controllers are delayed. Uh-huh, I said, standing up and stretching. It's the controllers. Dude, let me hold that alien speaking spell thing. I told you, it's called a scroll, and it doesn't work for humans. I groaned in frustration. Listen, man, I can't spend the whole day doing this. Everyone is wondering what's up. What are you doing here? I told you, no. No more about some weird NARS account run by some jack-off who calls himself the historian. I told you, I'm not who you think I am. Isaiah eyed me carefully, then sighed. No, I don't think you are. At least let me hide here until I've made a plan. Well, unless your plan is to die at Bubba Bobble, you may be going about this all wrong. The seriousness returned to Isaiah's face. Something is coming. Danny Thomas, and when it arrives, your little world of video games and skateboards, your friends, your mother, all of it will come crashing down. Heavy. I'd spent the end of the previous night sneaking Isaiah back into the house, if for no other reason than the paranoia that he was lurking around the yard waiting to scare my mom. I'd been an awkward tangle of anxiety, all fidgety and quiet, not laughing at a rented copy of Short Circuit with everyone else, not eating my pizza. Emma eyed me from across the room all night. She lowered her eyebrows and just barely pursed her lips the way she does when she catches her reflection, her way of trying to figure me out. Each expression seemed to ask, what's going on? My inability to soothe her misgivings made things even worse. Unaware of the American tendency to ignore visible discomfort, Jade eventually asked point-blank what was wrong with me. 
I could have been cryptic, but I was worried the group would press me, so I made up something about feeling sick, but downplayed the whole thing. Everyone seemed to buy it except Emma, who went on watching me with quiet skepticism. When everyone finally left, I found Isaiah in the dark shed outside, hunched over the same futuristic device I'd seen him consult earlier that afternoon in my room. The device opened like a tall, thin book. Instead of pages, the inside of the book was lined with monitor screens. Unlike the convex matte blackness of the Atari ST, these screens were flat and alive with bright, vivid color. Isaiah seemed to be manipulating the screens via a small and confusing keypad below them. The whole device flashed and responded to his flickering fingertips. What the hell is that thing? He whirled around as though I'd caught him with a porno magazine, then breathed an annoyed sigh of relief at the realization that it was me. It's a NARS scroll, he said, turning back to the device. A NARS scroll? I repeated, a tone in my voice to suggest this name was totally stupid, though I was already jealous of whatever it was. Yes, a NARS scroll, he said again, mocking my mockery. What is it? I asked, like a computer thing? Not a computer thing, he hissed, moving the device further from my reach. The scroll creates a connection with NARS without need of wires or modems or your bulky, primitive personal computers. I had a million questions. Wait, what? How does it connect to anything without wires? How is that even possible? Waves, he said, swirling a scaly finger in the air between us, like your wireless phones and radio antennas. Of course, I knew how to modify Nintendos and program plastic robots, but I didn't know any of the science behind how it all worked. I saw no need to admit this to Isaiah. I moved on to something else. And you have a NARS account? Since when do Emi use NARS? I thought you guys had that whole APOP thing. APEP, he corrected me, clearly offended. It's APEP. And APEP is not some ridiculous virtual dump for fabrications and NARSies. APEP is a living network that moves through the very life of Gaina. Sort of like waves, I interrupted absently, peering over his shoulder to try and steal a look at the mysterious scroll. Look, humans are going to get something even more impressive than scrolls, the majority of the human population, unless we can stop it from happening. Why do we need to stop humans from getting portable computer things? He snapped the book-shaped machine shut and looked at me with new intensity. That's not what we're stopping. What are we stopping? I say I looked over my shoulder through the open shed door into the house behind it. Can't we go back inside? He asked. I want you to read the second post from the historian.
Ground control was empty, and I wondered aloud if it was even open to the public. Nah, said Connor, strolling into the maze of arcade cabinets and flashing lights. Of course, shutting off the machines would mean erasing the high score, so the arcade never slept. Connor reached behind an employee's-only door and began tinkering with the tape deck until music filled the room, mostly smothering the low cacophony of video games and sound effects. Sometimes, Connor yawned, the great power surf will let me borrow a set of keys if I promise to stay out of trouble and lock up afterward. The great power surf was a legend in Portland. A mysterious video game expert of some kind, well-known but rarely seen, He'd earned the funny nickname by becoming the only human we knew to achieve a high score in the surfing portion of an awful Nintendo cartridge called California Games. Not really the sort of accomplishment for which one accepts a new moniker, but the ridiculousness of it seemed to appeal to him, and somehow made him seem even more badass. Power Surf was often out of town or else hidden away from the public eye, emerging long enough to do something like give a random punk rock teenager the keys to his arcade. Aren't you supposed to be in school? Connor asked without looking at me. Or have I corrupted you? I'll leave in time to be early for next period, I lied. With everything that had happened yesterday, I had decided not to brave returning to school, but needed to get out of my house for at least an hour or two. Connor, on the other hand, skipped school more often than he attended it. When he called and mentioned ground control, I hid Isaiah as quickly as possible before I was out the door. Dude, I said, how is PowerSurf cool enough to give you the keys to the kingdom? Every quarter counts, Connor shrugged, moving immediately to the dreaded Dragon's Lair machine. Oh, for Christ's sake, dude, enough with Dragon's Lair. Yes, my doubtful companion, I will play for Christ's sake and slay that ancient serpent, the devil. Is the devil even in Dragon's Lair? I asked, setting my skateboard up beside Connor's against the side of the arcade's tall cabinet. Who knows, Connor said. No one can get that far. I scanned the other cabinets. At least entertain me, I said. Play that new ninja game. Shinobi, Connor asked, disdain in his tone. Yes, Shinobi, I echoed, mocking his sass. It's awesome. Dude, Shinobi is for posers. Complete and utter historical bogusness. Who the hell has that many throwing stars? Where does he keep those things? It's like, call Stephen Hayes, man. Get a consult. Stephen K. Hayes is an American martial artist who took a totally badass pilgrimage to Japan to find an authentic ninja master to train him. The coolest part is that he did it. Hayes was trained by the last living ninjutsu grandmaster, Masaaki Hatsumi. Hayes was the first American ever to do such a thing. He'd authored a ton of books about his experiences, and Connor and I, enthusiasts as we were, read them all. Have you seen his NARS profile? I asked Connor. Totally, said Connor. I've thought about writing him, but I have no idea what I'd say. Yeah, I agreed excitedly. I've already written to him. About what? Connor asked, sounding surprised. Momentarily flustered, I changed the subject. Okay, Shinobi is bogus, I said. But even if he drove a Cadillac and battled villains with a lightsaber, he'd be less bogus than Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair was an infuriating game powered by, of all things, a laser disc. In it, you control a knight called Dirk the Daring 
through a complex dungeon in an attempt to save Princess Daphne from the evil dragon Singe. Unlike basically every arcade game ever, Dragon's Lair had decided to forego the immediate responsiveness of guiding a character, jumping, attacking, that sort of thing. Instead, the game worked by having the player stand there and view tiny animated vignettes, each of which necessitated some unpredictable response on the player's part to cue the next scene without dying. So, Dirk the Daring wanders over a bridge. You watch it happen. And you're supposed to somehow know that you're meant to toggle the joystick left or he abruptly falls to his death. Another similar scenario follows, and before long, you're out of quarters and baffled by what just happened. Dragon's Lair blows. The game's only appeal was in its vivid animation rendered by Don Bluth, the guy responsible for The Secret of Nim. So kids were drawn to the demo screen thinking, screw Pac-Man, I'm about to play a goddamn cartoon. Of course, play isn't exactly the word I would use to describe what you do. More like watching a cartoon while you dumbly clamor at the controls and the off chance something you press might affect the predetermined laser disc response for the good of your character, which it almost never did. Why the hell do you keep playing this game? I groaned, looking around the empty arcade. Dude, you're wrecking my concentration. Connor suddenly barked. I looked over and saw the first of what I was sure would be many game-over screens. You suck, I said. I only died because you were talking to me, he said, dropping in another couple of quarters. Did I mention that it takes two quarters to play this thing? I was struck by the eeriness of the empty room, each of the dozens of machines all singing out into the total lack of customers with monophonic themes and flashing demos begging you to insert coin and go for the ride of your life. The room was mostly dark and utterly windowless, the glow of the flickering screens flashing on the carpet beneath us adorned with neon geometric patterns. I looked back at Connor. Go left, I said, then yelled, no, right! Go to class, damn it. Connor yelped, pounding a fist down on the console as another game-over lit up on the display, Dirk's goofy visage suddenly shriveling to a pale corpse. This, Connor stated emphatically, leveling both hands at the game as if it were an idol of some kind. This is my white whale. Do you understand me? This is my Everest. Your white whale, I asked, watching him deposit another 50 cents. Dude, did you even read Moby Dick? Of course not he answered, his eyes flicking frantically over the animation. But dude, I get the idiom. Abandon your hopeless quest and let's play Rampage. Never. Besides, you've got to start shredding if you're going to be early to next period. You have your own princess to save. The heck you say? He looked at me with an expression that read, Give me a break. What's up with you guys anyway? Connor asked. I reflexively played dumb, asking, Who? And immediately regretting how contrived it sounded coming out of my mouth. Whatever it was that happened with her, Connor continued, ignoring my little charade, you won't resolve it by watching me die in Dragon's Lair. Another game over. He swore silently through clenched teeth. Either way, your word was early to next period, and word is bond. Word is bond... I sighed, retrieving my board and heading for the door. Dude, 
Connor called out, looking back over his shoulder as I opened the door and the sound of rain mixed with the beeping cacophony of the arcade. Don't die, man. On the screen, Connor's character did just that. Again. To ensure proliferation of the word virus, you can support our efforts via patreon.com slash the word virus. Lure others to infection by sharing the word virus via social media on Twitter at the word virus and Instagram at spread the word virus and at the word 